Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast with the greatest science news in the world. Yeah, uh, it's exciting this week because we are not talking about COVID at all. Well, we are in the magazine, of course, but this week on the podcast, we're having a week off. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us today is staff writer Michael LePage and science writer Rebecca Rag sykes Hello. 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 Coming up this week, we have important news about friendship, we hear about what Neanderthals might have been speaking about before they went extinct, and we have a breakthrough in warp drive technology. (laughs) Yeah, and I've also been talking with Pulitzer Prize winning author Elizabeth Colbert about the follies, or otherwise, of geoengineering. Before all of that, though, it's time to quickly remind you that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and get your discount. And also, after listening to this, do go and listen to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, to really get away from it all. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on Wednesday, SpaceX tested their Starship rocket. That's the one they intend to fly to Mars and the Moon. Uh, It flew to 10 kilometres and then flipped over to what they technically call the belly flop position. Uh, Then it descended uh, and successfully landed. So it was a big moment on the way to Mars. Uh, it did blow up 10 minutes later, but, you know, it's it's only the third test of this thing. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, but this week we had more news that gives hope to people who want to start uh, a self-sustaining base on the moon or on Mars. Uh, Michael. Yes, this is the news that the Chinese have made an almost completely self-sustaining base or biological life support system. So two groups of four people alternatively lived in a, a sealed environment called the Lunar Palace One for a year, with one group spending a record-setting 200 days without needing any supplies except electricity. Wow. And according to details released recently, the volunteers got 98% of all the materials they needed to survive from recycling, with just 2% coming in from the outside at the beginning. And what was the 2%? That apparently includes things such as seeds, toilet tissue, cleaning materials. (laughs) Okay, so they call it Lunar Palace. um, And, uh, you know, I am very insightful. So I'm going to guess that they do have an eye on a moon base there. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, China's aim is eventually to establish long term human bases on the moon. Uh, You might remember their 2019 lander actually sprouted seeds on the moon. Yeah, that was incredible. So what did they produce the air they breathed as well? Yes, all the oxygen they, they used and all the carbon dioxide removal was done by the plants, which included wheat, potatoes, tomatoes, carrots, cucumbers and strawberries. There were some sort of ups and downs when the crews swapped, but the gas levels remained within safe limits. And obviously they grew those plants to eat. What about, yes. pro- what about protein? 
Well, they also grew some mealworms and made them into a kind of bread to get extra protein. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> uh, and their drinking water, did they have to drink their own wee? Uh, it wasn't quite that bad. So they the urine was only used for irrigation after treatment and the, the drinking water was condensed from the air. So it was, it was basically distilled air and completely pure. Wow. I, I am getting visions of Matt Damon in The Martian on this. Yeah, very <laughs> reminiscent of that, isn't it? Um, how does it compare to what's happened before then? So in the 1990s, eight people spent two years in the Biosphere 2 in Arizona, which was massive, actually, much bigger than a Chinese facility. And it didn't go well. They ended up sort of starving and low on oxygen and had to have extra supplies delivered. So it, it doesn't really count. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Um what about any psychological issues? Because, you know, stuck inside for all that time with only a few other people and eating mealworms, <laughs> you know, were they OK? According to the researchers, they were fine, both physically and mentally. I, I didn't get a chance to talk to the actual volunteers, though. Well, so the Chinese are pretty well advanced with their plans for lunar missions. Um, so a base wouldn't have to be completely self-sustaining, though, would it? Because there's always going to be resupply missions coming from Earth. So what, what do you see as the biggest problems left to solve? The biggest issue is the radiation, which is much higher than in Earth orbit. So any base will have to be underground to protect the people. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to grow plants, you've got to keep them lit and warm. And you've got this problem of the lunar night, which lasts two weeks and it gets extremely sort of cold. So that, that's going to be a huge challenge in terms of providing the power. And then there's the issue of developing a taste for mealworm bread, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, apart from that, what about uh, any spin-off benefits for us on Earth? Absolutely. So developing biological life support systems is all about finding green ways to produce clean air, water and food. And some of the technology developed by the European Space Agency for this kind of biological life support system is already used in hundreds of water treatment plants worldwide. And now, Tiff, you've got some friendship news to tell us about. Yeah, so the cover story in this week's magazine is about sort of the fundamental laws of friendship. And this kind of starts off with something known as Dunbar's number, which is supposedly the maximum size of our social networks. Yeah, I've heard of that. I didn't know it was called Dunbar's number, with apologies to Robin Dunbar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's the thing that our brains can only cope with having 150 people in our social network, isn't it? Yeah, and that includes, you know, family, friends, acquaintances, and so on, um, which is why people from really big families tend to have fewer friends. Um, oh, yeah. But this week, we've got a piece written by um, the scientist behind Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar, um, and it goes into some really intriguing details about the typical composition of all of our social circles. Right. So that's when we have a social circle, right? When we're allowed to go out and see people. But, but yeah, go on. Yeah, slightly more theoretical at the moment. Yeah. Um, so he's done some really interesting studies that, you know, sort of before all the lockdowns were imposed. And his, his latest analysis revealed that, you know, people spend around 20% of their time on average on social interactions. So that works out to about three and a half hours every day, talking, eating, sitting, chatting with people in a social context. So what does that tell us about how friendship can persist if you don't get to see someone for ages, like, uh, like at the moment? So 
it is the truth that friendships do need to be nurtured. Um, we can get away with neglecting our family relationships a little bit and they will <laughs> endure. Right. Um, but a friendship of, of high strength will kind of deteriorate into more of an acquaintanceship after just three years if it's not nurtured. Okay, so three years, that's not bad. We've still got two years before I've got no friends left. <laughs> <laughs> one, one other interesting um, finding that Robin Dunbar made in, in his recent analysis is that in general, there are trends in sort of how males and females maintain their friendships. And um, so he found that for females, the kind of the top way to maintain friendships is talking, you know, either on the phone or in person or what have you. But for males, that made less of a difference. And it was more about doing stuff together, whether that's going to the movies or going to the pub together. So not cliched at all there, not stereotyped at <laughs> I know, all. There. Unfortunately. <laughs> Are we is that because uh, you know, we're really low maintenance or we just have worse relationships? I mean, I'm not sure about your personal attitude toward friendship, Rowan, but um, in general, these kind of social fingerprints we have are influenced like by things like personality, sex, whether you're a night owl, so you, you tend to stay up late, or a lark, you're a morning person. Um, but we go into all of that in, in much more detail in the magazine, and we'll post a link in the podcast notes. Time out. Time to remind you about our range of live online events that have been really popular recently, especially during all these restrictions. There's been a whole load of subjects. Uh, there's something for everyone. Go to newscientist.com events to find out. Coming up next on March the 11th, we've got a quantum computing event with Michelle Simmons and John Martinez. Uh, they're a world-class pair of experts. Yeah, Michelle Simmons is leading the global race to develop a quantum computer in silicon. And quantum computers, of course, will provide an exponential speed up in computing power for key problems. She's director of the Center for Excellence for Quantum Computer Technology and Communication Technology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And in 2019, John Martinez's team at Google achieved the long-sought goal of quantum supremacy. So that's demonstrating that they had built a quantum computer that could solve a problem that could not be realistically solved by any traditional computer. It's going to be an unmissable lecture. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out about how to sign up. And while you're there, go to newscientist.com slash newsletter to find out about all our amazing free email newsletters. Now, let's talk about Neanderthals. Yes. Now, we talking about them is appropriate because work <laughs> out this week uh, has shown that Neanderthal ears had the same physical capacity for hearing as modern humans. Uh, and by inference, they could make the same sounds we could and maybe they could even talk. To discuss this, we're really pleased today to welcome Rebecca Rag Sykes on the show. Hello again, Rebecca. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, Rebecca's the author of Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death and Art. It's a wonderful book that really brings these people to life. Um, so what's your take on this, Rebecca? What do we know about their capacity for language? Well, obviously, we, we don't have a time machine to go back into the Pleistocene and actually listen and eavesdrop um, and, you know, see did they have complicated syntax and all this kind of thing. So what we have to deal with is two kinds of evidence, basically. We have anatomical evidence from their bodies and also uh, genetics as well, um, and archaeological evidence. Um, so those are the two arenas from which we can basically make pretty decent uh, inferences. Um, and this new work is is really nice, actually, because I think it really crystallises 
the growing consensus that Neanderthals were able to produce sounds um, that were pretty similar to what living people um, can produce and also that they could basically hear the same um, sound frequencies but more than that that their uh, ears were actually tuned in to those same frequencies that are really crucial in human speech. Yeah so the researcher that we spoke to for this story uh, Mercedes Conde Valverde uh, she said that they were tuned especially to consonants that appear in modern languages consonants such as s k t and th uh, so in the same way as uh, yeah as you say as the same way that we talk and hear yeah um i mean in the paper um it's it's actually the voiceless sound so like t k f s th and the interesting implication there is that those are part of the consonant sounds as well as the others and um, but those ones are you know they're not loud they don't we don't put our voice into those um, uh, and so yeah. they're especially useful for close communication you know with people close to you you can't shout a th across the valley <laughs> yeah. um so you know that's that's interesting because it's it's kind of making us think about the the purpose of language um which is different kinds of communication yes there is long range communication where you can shout and whatever but it's the intimate purpose of language um you know to to communicate information to other people um and sort of the social grooming aspect which comes back to Dunbar's number you know the the sort of the the debates as to why we can only deal with so many people and in fact language allows us to have bigger social networks than chimpanzees for example so I think there are some really interesting implications for not only you know could Neanderthals talk to each other but what happened when we met Neanderthals you know that if there is a commonality in not only the the ability to make sounds but to listen and to to really have particular kinds of of sound that were were shared um you know maybe it wouldn't have been that difficult um to begin to to mimic and kind of come to some kind of understanding vocally wow well that that kind of makes sense because we know we had sex with them right yeah so, absolutely you know we probably spoke to them before we did that <laughs> well, it depends on the context, but you would hope so, yeah. Well, um, so what about um, archaeological? Uh, stop sniggering there at the back, Michael. I can hear. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about uh, the archaeology? What can we tell about from that, Rebecca? About you know, how can we reconstruct uh, you know ideas about their language from that? Well, that's that's pretty complicated, really. I mean, when you look at the anatomy, you can compare it directly to ours. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more solid when you're looking at the archaeology. It's about how we interpret what they were doing means in terms of communication abilities. So there are very generic arguments, um, such as particular kinds of stone technologies that they had, um, one of which is called Lavalwa. Is that difficult enough that you couldn't learn it without somebody like teaching you using right. words? Um, and yeah. so that is something that is really debated. And I don't think that's very solid. But what is interesting um, in terms of arguments over what makes our language really special um, and different to, you know, like um, what other animals um, do is that we have more complicated syntax, which basically means how we arrange all the sounds into words and then those words into sentences um, and different clauses and things like this. 
that is really complicated in us and it relies on hierarchical arrangements and when you put things together in different groupings they can have different meanings basically so if we look at what neanderthals did with all the stuff around them one of the intriguing ideas is that composite technology which neanderthals definitely developed um basically that just means putting different parts together into one tool that is kind of like a material representation of hierarchical syntax. If you have a piece of flint that you've napped and a wooden handle, an adhesive that you've also produced, you have to make those in the right order and put them together in the right order. So the fact that Neanderthals had composite technology, I think, may be telling us that, um, A, they were doing things that were really difficult that needed um, some kind of teaching and knowledge, but also they understood structure, they understood planning, they understood hierarchies. Yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. Um, a, another bit that struck me in your book is when you said that they certainly laughed and joked and they, they may have memorised chronicles. What's your thinking on that? Well, I mean, laughing, uh, you know, chimpanzees laugh. They don't do it Okay, the I'll give you that. Oh, yeah, but <laughs> memorising chronicles, though. I'm thinking there about elephants and about how elephants have an understanding of landscape that has a chronological element a temporal element to it so basically if if a a matriarch elephant has in their memory where there's a water hole during a drought that information might not be needed for many years but when there is a drought it's vital and in that kind of sense if neanderthals had a vocal communication and also had um, the ability to conceptualize sequences probably some kind of basic numeracy which we can see in very young children and animals as well Um, and we also know from the archaeological record that they were very rarely but they were sometimes making sequences of markings on surfaces that do not seem to be anything to do with butchery like on bones and things so there is a hint there that there is some kind of informational content all of those things are quite disparate separate kinds of evidence but when you put them together and the fact you know we can see from from the anatomy here with this new research confirming we should expect them to have some kind of language um when you put all of that together the idea that they understood past and present and that they could perhaps talk about what happened before and what what may happen that's kind of what i'm talking about when i'm talking about chronicles and and the emergence of story That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. Rowan? Uh, This week it's real news you can use. Uh, We found a way of making a warp drive that doesn't break the laws of physics. Wow, so that'll mean sort of hopping over the four light years or whatever it is to Proxima Centauri will be much more easy, right? Very practical. It is. Um, So first, (laughs) what you need to do... Well, first of all, a warp drive isn't an engine, despite what you might think by the name of it. Um, It's a bubble of space time protected by a shell of matter. uh, And inside, you know, inside the shell, the fundamental properties uh, differ from those on the outside. So what does that mean? It's it's a TARDIS. (laughs) Uh, Well, no, it's a a flying burrito. Yeah, it is a tie. So uh, you'll, we'll, get to the, we'll get to the burrito in a minute. So like the shell, which is the, the, the taco, basically, you use the shell to stretch and compress space time. Uh, and that means theoretically you can move faster than the speed of light. And that's because Einstein's relativity 
only sets limits for things that move in space-time. It doesn't affect the speed of space-time itself. Okay, so in terms of news you can use, how do you go about that you know, small matter of stretching and compressing space-time? Right, so, so the idea that's come out now is that you get a shell, so the shell of matter, you make it so massive that its gravitational field compresses space-time, and then you use some method of propulsion to move it around. Okay, but a shell big enough to compress space-time sounds pretty big. Um, Yes. The physicist who came up with this says that um, if you think of a burrito as a warp drive, the contents of it uh, is the passenger. But the problem is that the, the tortilla that you use to wrap the burrito, it would have to be massive to, to deform space-time. And they calculate that the mass required is greater than that of an entire planet. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they say um, if we take the mass of the whole planet Earth and compress it to a shell 10 metres big, then the correction to the rate of time inside it, if you then wrapped it up, is still only an one hour, an extra hour in the year. So an actual warp drive, even a small one, is still very much science fiction. Very, very much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe in a few hundred years. And so... Is the sci-fi connection this week the Star Trek warp drive? Uh, It could be that, but um, I want to highlight uh, a story I've talked about before on the podcast, but that's Cheating Lou's epic trilogy, The Three-Body Problem, which has got a kind of warp drive similar to this. Next up, Elizabeth Colbert is a Pulitzer Prize-winning environment reporter at The New Yorker. Her new book is called Under a White Sky. It's about the grand interventions that we are pursuing to try and fix the problems that we've already caused, and basically asking if the fixes, the geoengineering solutions, are actually going to cause even more problems. Yeah, I spoke to Elizabeth on the line from Massachusetts earlier, and I asked her first what she made of the recent finding by the UN that we're likely to miss the Paris target of staying under 1.5 degrees of warming. I'll be frank and say 1.5 was all always, you know, yeah. back into 2015, a kind of, it's like saying, can you go backward in time, which is yeah. not something we figured out how to do. One, 1.5, we're already at 1.5. I think we need to be somewhat honest about that. The bigger question, you know, the question very much before us is, you know, can we keep this to two degrees? Once again, very difficult, doable, but very difficult. I mean, it does, to me at least, suggests that we should do more research into some of the bigger scale sort of maybe we call it traditional geoengineering like solar radiation management you know some of these the things that are dangerous and bigger unknowns but you know it's better to know what we're doing than blunder into something when things get really bad well that is definitely the thinking of the guys you know i spent a while with the lead scientists on what's called the Harvard Solar Geoengineering Research Program, which is probably the most sort of advanced of these programs, though I think we're going to see more and more of them spring up. And that's their argument. And I think that there's a lot of compelling logic to that. You know, it's it's not like, you know, there on the one hand, there are people who say we shouldn't even be talking about this. We shouldn't even be dangling it out there. It is just going to encourage the world to produce more and more CO2 if they think there's some, you know, magic <laughs> bullet out there. 
And I think that's a very legitimate concern too. So they're both very legitimate. Well, and, like we're not producing loads of CO2 already though. You exactly, know. exactly. Yeah. It would be a much more compelling argument if we were actually taking yeah. dramatic steps to reduce our emissions. Since we're not, you know, we're just getting ourselves into this uh, hellish situation where I think it's not implausible to imagine one day that will look like our best option. So we're, you know, as I say, all of these stories are about jams we've gotten ourselves into. You know, one of the chapters in the book deals with this idea of carbon dioxide removal, which is an idea, let's put it that way, or or a technique. I don't know exactly how to, what word to use. That's already sort of baked in to the projection. So if you look at any of the scenarios that the IPCC looked at for you know, holding global temperatures to 1.5 degrees C. And and this is, you know, why they are probably, or one of the reasons that, you know, they have reached the realm of, of being fantasy at this point is they contain a lot of negative emissions. They already contain a lot of negative emissions. But the fact is that without negative emissions, without some way to get CO2 out of the air, you have to reduce emissions to net zero, is what's now being called net zero, very, very fast. We just had Elon Musk announcing a $100 million carbon capture and storage prize. Um, Bill Gates has invested in in a lot of carbon capture technology. Jeff Bezos, I mean, his, his Earth Fund, $10 billion Earth Fund, it's a bit unclear about what, what that's going to go to at the moment. But, you know, you've got billionaires starting to throw money around, but they're doing it in this sort of technological way, aren't they? In that, the, a way that they probably can make more money out of. Well, there's that possibility. I do think we have to be very wary about that. But I also think the reason that they're throwing money at it, you know, I'll be you know frank and say no one asked for my opinion. None of them consulted me, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> But there is still the sense that, well, we're going to need some technology to get us out of this mess because clearly as social beings, you know, we're not getting out of this mess as political animals. We see the political system in country after country and and also globally just basically stuck at this point. So I don't think it's irrational to say, well, we better find something because, you know, we're sure as hell not doing it through the political system. now. There's also the argument that any promise, once again, it gets back a little bit to the question about geoengineering, that any idea that there is some technology that's going to save us simply takes the heat off the political system. But to get back to what you were saying before, that would be a more compelling argument if the political system weren't so evidently incapable of dealing with these problems. Well, what would you like to see a, a billionaire spending his, I mean, it is his usually, spending his <laughs> his money on? Yeah, well, increasingly there are she's, so let's not leave out okay, McKenzie, well, uh, the ex-Mrs. Bezos, who's become sure, a huge player. Yeah, Sure. Well, like, you know, let's say um, one of these billionaires wanted to chuck, uh, you know, $10 billion at something. I mean, it seems to me that you could tackle a, a biodiversity problem and a carbon drawdown problem at the same time and um, you know fund a great big ecosystem restoration program and you know why don't people do that well I, I I agree with you if I if if Jeff Bezos or you know asked me where he should put his money I would put it into acquiring big pieces of relatively intact ecosystems and leaving them alone. This is a hopeful time, though, isn't it? Yeah. I think in the US, there's definitely a sense 
that as you know Joe Biden would put it you know we're back we're back on the world stage we're back in Paris we're back trying to be on the side of you know light as opposed to darkness <laughs> um but the political complexities in the US which I don't want to get too bogged down in but let's just say they're they're very significant right now so what would you like to people to take away from this book from reading this book well i think i'd like to take them to take a away from it, an appreciation of the extraordinary moment that we're living in, in which we as humans unwittingly, and in some cases wittingly, have really become the dominant force on planet Earth. Uh, We've gotten ourselves into, you know, kind of a jam up here, and how the decisions we make from here on will be, you know, consequential for more or less forever. So we have to hope that we make them as wisely as possible. That was Elizabeth Colbert talking about some of the stuff she writes about in her new book, Under a White Sky, which I have to say, by the way, it should obviously be read in tandem with another certain book called How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. Uh, uh, Had to get that in. That's all for this week. Thanks, Michael and Rebecca, for joining us. And thanks to you all for listening. Do listen to our sister show, Escape Pod. Uh, This week, it's all about speed. And remember, as a valued listener, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist. 20% off. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Bye. 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 Goodbye. (laughs) This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.